Now we come to the reading of the word, and if you would please open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. We jump right to the end. The number that the choir sang is <clears throat> one of my favorite numbers, but I can't listen to it, I much less sing it, without getting overcome with emotion. So, um, uh, while we read the scripture, I'll be able to gather myself. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I'm going to read the whole chapter because I think we need it for context. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of the grinding fades, when men rise up at the sound of birds but all the songs grow faint, when men are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags himself along and desire no longer is stirred. Then man goes to his eternal home, and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed, or the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring, or the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no end, and, of my, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Lord, this is your word. We want to handle it rightly. We know that uh, it is true because it's inspired by you, and we know that it is for our good. So I pray, Lord, that you would um, guard my mouth and my thoughts, that you would only let truth come forth, and anything that you do not intend uh, for us to retain, I pray that the Holy Spirit would only bring those things to mind that that are uh, that you would have us to remember and benefit from. Let this time, Lord, be a time that we worship you in spirit and in truth and that you would make our minds clear and our words wise and that you would bless the hearing and the preaching of your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, it's good to be back with you again. Uh, I think this is the fourth time I've been here, if I'm counting correctly. 
And every time I've really, really enjoyed it, and I appreciate the opportunity to, to do it, and I appreciate the elders asking me to do it. And I'm excited for you that you have a pastor now and uh, that he'll be here shortly. It's, uh, it's to his advantage that he's been in this presbytery before. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about our presbytery, but uh, it, it's good to have experience here. And so he's a known quantity, and he'll sail through all the, the requirements, uh, I'm sure, without any problems. And so I know you're looking forward to having him, back, or having him full time, and it won't be long. Uh, but when I was here before... I preached from Philippians chapter 4, and we talked about joy or rejoicing. And the point I tried to make was that joy is commanded in Scripture, that we are commanded to be joyful. And uh, remember I said that joy is not the same as happiness. It's not the absence of sorrow or sadness. It is an, almost an attitude, so to speak, R.C. Sproul said that joy is a profound sense of peace, comfort, and stability deep in your soul. And another source said that joy is the background music of life, that it's the undercurrent of whatever else happens, we can face it with a sense of joy. Then we come to the book of Ecclesiastes. And here the writer of Ecclesiastes, most people think it's Solomon, but that's not, it doesn't matter one way or the other. But here the book of Ecclesiastes says everything is meaningless. It's one of the most, um, I think, misunderstood books in the Bible. It's, it's certainly one of the most <laughs> difficult to understand. And it's because of things like this where it says everything is meaningless. It gives a description of old age that we're going to get to in just a minute, which I think the imagery is just perfect. But it, 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 go back to, uh, if you've got your Bibles, go back to chapter 1. And let me just go through a few verses in Ecclesiastes to demonstrate some of the difficulties that people have in understanding this because it starts with a proclamation of almost hopelessness or fatalism. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the teacher... Son of David, king of Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, and he goes through the how cyclical life is in the earth. But then in verse uh, 9 it says, what will be? What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there's something new? It was here already, long ago, and it was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Doesn't that sound hopeless? Um, then in uh, chapter 2, he goes through... Before we get to chapter 2, he goes through all the attitudes of life, all the aspects of life would seem to be meaningless. In, uh, going on in chapter 1, and look at verse 16. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone has, who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to understanding of wisdom and also of madness, of folly, madness and folly. But I learned this. 
I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, and more knowledge the more grief. And then look down in chapter 2, verse 10. Even pleasure is meaningless. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And down in verse 17, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things that I had toiled under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work that I have poured into my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. And he goes on to say uh, in verse 21, For a man may do work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave it all. He must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. So then in uh, chapter four, it goes on to talk about oppression and loneliness. And uh, then in, uh, in, verse, in chapter nine, he brings it all to a culmination, I guess you could say. In chapter nine, um, in verse three, he says, this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better than a dead lion. And so his conclusion is, after everything in life, after all the hard work, even after the seeking of pleasure, there's no satisfaction or peace in any of those things, and then we die. Now, where's the joy in that? I, I just spent the whole last sermon talking about how we're commanded to be joyful and we can rejoice. And then here comes Ecclesiastes and says, life is hard. We work hard. Some of us play hard. But then we all die. The wise man and the fool, they both die. So what's the point? Some people think, that and if you notice the verses that I read, almost all of them had something to do with under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, appears, at least according to my count, Ecclesiastes 29 times. And so there are some commentators who say that phrase, under the sun, is there because what the writer is talking about is life viewed just from what we see in this life without thinking about eternity or the relationship with God, this life is meaningless. So if you have God, if you have a relationship with God, then this life is not meaningless. But I submit to you that that's not consistent throughout the book of Ecclesiastes because there are several places that we're going to see in a minute that God ordains things. God ordains the things in our lives. He gives us days under the sun, and it's still meaningless. So it is a true statement that life without a relationship with God is certainly meaningless. But it doesn't necessarily mean that life with a relationship with God is not meaningless. So that's a conundrum. So how do we deal with that? Well, one of the things you need to understand, this word 
meaningless. In the King James Version and the ESV, it was translated vanity, which is not a whole lot better because vanity is something that is fleeting. But another translation of that word is breeze or breath. And all through the Psalms, when it talks about life being a breath or a vapor, that's the same word, habel, that's used here in this word that's translated meaningless. I think that the... I'm not an expert, and I certainly don't want to second-guess people who know Greek, uh, Hebrew, uh, because I don't. I just read the commentaries. But a lot of the commentaries did agree with me that that's a poor choice of translation to say that everything is meaningless. Now, some of the places that's talked about there, meaningless fits. But a lot of places, the word meaningless just makes everything meaningless. It means it's, there's no point. Now, God couldn't have intended that to be the meaning by putting Ecclesiastes in the Bible because there are too many places that contradict that, that idea. So what does it mean? There's a book um, that uh, was written by a fellow uh, named Gibson, uh, David Gibson, and the name of the book is Living Life Backward. And it's a commentary, it's, it's a, uh, probably a series of sermons, but it's a book on Ecclesiastes, Living Life Backwards. And his view is that you have to start with death because the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes is everybody dies. So if we know that this life ends in this life here on earth ends in death, then how should that make us look at the life we have? Here's what he says. When we accept in a deep way that we're going to die, that reality can stop us from expecting too much from all the good things we pursue. We learn to pursue them for what they are in themselves rather than what we need them to be to make us happy. Now think about that. Why do you do what you do? Why do you go to work? Why do you like the entertainment that you like? But he goes on to say, Death orients us to our limitations as creatures and helps us to see God's good gifts right in front of us all the time, each and every day of our lives. Instead of using these gifts as a means to a greater end of securing ultimate gain in the world, we take time to live inside the gifts themselves and see the hand of God in them. Ordinarily, we eat and drink simply to fuel to an, simply as fuel to enable us to keep going with our work. Ordinarily, we work not just to earn a living, but to find satisfaction and purpose, and very likely to make a reputation for ourselves and to achieve success. What if the pleasure of food is a daily joy that we ungratefully overlook? Now, some of us may not overlook the joy of the food, but that's, he's not getting into obesity here, um, or gluttony, I mean. But what if the pleasure of food was a, is a daily joy that we ungratefully overlook? What if, we work, what if our work was never intended to make us successful, but simply to make us faithful and generous? What if it is death that shows that this is how we are meant to live? Now, that's a different perspective. Because if we're honest with ourselves, that description of all the meaninglessness things that I just read from Ecclesiastes, we can identify with that. At least I can. 
you find, we find ourselves working and thinking that by working, we're going to accomplish something. And it's true that we accomplish the production of goods, perhaps, or services. We produce uh, income for our family so that we can eat. Yeah, it's productive. But if we're honest, most of us think that our work is going to produce something meaningful and, and uh, gives us satisfaction. But that's not what Ecclesiastes is talking about. If, if that's the goal in life, then indeed it is meaningless. So, what's the answer? With that perspective, let's look at the places in Ecclesiastes that talk about the simple joys in life. Uh, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but uh, I'm just going to go real quickly in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? And then over in chapter 3, verse 22, well, let's go back first, uh, let's go first to verse 12. Um, I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy and do good while they live, that everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all his toil. This is the gift of God. And over in verse 22, so I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work, because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? I mean, think about that. Who enjoys their work just because they enjoy their work? I mean, most people work because they think it's going to accomplish something. But yet here, the writer is saying, enjoy your work because that's what God's given to you. Because you don't know what's going to happen to it after you're gone. That, you know, I have a, a law practice and my partner and I, you know, we were, um, we're not long-range thinkers. We didn't have the goal of building a firm and having lawyers work for us so that when we got old, we could be of counsel and they would continue to pay us large sums of money. Our philosophy, all these years, we've been practicing together 40 years. And our, our philosophy has been, we want to eat what we kill. And we don't want to have to provide a lot of work for somebody else who's going to take it with them when they leave. And so my retirement plan is the last one out turns out the lights. But, you know, there's a certain freedom in that, too. I haven't spent my life being driven by building something that I'm going to leave to somebody else who may or may not care about it and are not going to remember me. So life can be simple because it says, who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Um, going on over to chapter 5, look at verse 18. Then I realized that it's good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor. It's toilsome but we can have satisfaction in the toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. And then in, verse, in chapter 7, verse 14, when times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider God has made one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. So in other words, be, be satisfied with what you have right now. And then in chapter 8, verse 15, 
So I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of the life God has given him under the sun. And then in chapter 9, verse 7, Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with joy, with a joyful heart. For it is now that God favors what you do. And down in verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you're going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. So enjoy what God has given you today. And then in um, chapter 11, he talks about the young people. Verse 9, verse 8, however many years a man may live, let him enjoy them all. But let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Doesn't mean that we're not going to have trouble. But enjoy the days that we have. In verse 9, be happy, young man, while you were young. And let your heart give you joy in the days of your youth. Follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. But know that for all these things God will bring you to judgment. So then banish anxiety from your heart. Now we're going to talk about judgment in just a minute. But the idea here is that God, first of all, and I've probably said this before, God is sovereign, but you can't look at God's sovereignty without also realizing that God is good. He is sovereign and he is good. He has brought the things into our lives that he wants for us to experience. And so rather than us try to figure out things that are going on or how we can do better in, in accomplishing certain things or where we can achieve satisfaction or where our peace lies. We find our satisfaction and our peace in the fact that God is God and we are man and God has given us what he wants us to have. So we're free. We're free. It's, it's so that we can have joy in this life. So how are we to experience this? Now I'm getting to my three points. That's, all of that was introduction. But this part will go quick. Let's look at chapter 12. In verse 9 it says, Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. So we have a responsibility to learn what God has to say. He pondered and surged out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of many books there's no end, and in much study wearies the body. Now here's the point. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. After everything that he's talked about, being meaningless and toil and all of that, but to enjoy what God has given us. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. So those are the three points. Fear God, keep his commandments, and know that judgment's coming. Now, what does it mean to fear God? We all have some concept of what that means. Uh, in Matthew 28, Jesus told his disciples not to fear the one who can kill the body, but to fear the one who can cast the body and soul into hell. 
So it's right to be fearful of God. The best, to me, the, the, the best illustration in all the Bible of the fear of God is in Isaiah chapter 6. Turn there because I, I can't do it justice without reading it. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two wings, uh, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. I mean, that's a terrifying sight. And then, in verse 5, Woe is me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. That's the fear of God. To see God for who he is in all his majesty. Who can stand before him? Martin Luther said that he always felt like when he came to pray that God was going to push him away with a pole. Maybe that's where that saying came from. I wouldn't touch him with a 10-foot pole. But Luther had that concept of God that we couldn't even come into his presence. And Isaiah here is afraid. I mean, he's physically afraid. Because of the majesty of God Almighty, he has seen the Lord. But the key is in the next verse. Then one of the seraphs, in verse 6, then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. That's the picture of God's majesty. And we don't really understand God's majesty until we understand our sinfulness. And here's Isaiah saying, I have seen this and I cannot stand in this presence. I am too unclean. Isaiah recognizes his sinfulness. And he recognizes that God is a fearsome God. But look what the angel did. The angel brought a live coal from the fire and touched Isaiah's lips. And he said, your guilt has been taken away. You don't have to be afraid. Your guilt has been taken away and your sins atoned for. That's the beauty of the gospel. Sure, we get eternal life and we live with the Lord ever, forevermore, but the, 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 the beauty is our sins have been atoned for and our guilt has been taken away. So that's the true fear of God, to understand who he is and who we are, but the fact that his great mercy has atoned for our sin and taken our guilt away, makes our whole relationship different. That's why in Hebrews chapter 4, we can say that we can come, oh, the King James says, boldly before the throne of grace. We can come with confidence into the very presence of God. Have you ever thought about the audacity of that? That we can come, how flippantly sometimes do we approach the throne? But yet we can approach the throne of grace to find mercy to help us in time of need because our guilt has been taken away and our sins atoned for. So that's the true understanding of the fear of God.
that if we have a true understanding of the fear of God, then it makes his commands not burdensome and not hard. Because the next point is, if we understand the fear of God, then we keep his commandments. Now, there are a few things that I want to tell you about the God's commandments. One point is just what we read in verse 9, that the teacher has pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. He searched to find just the right words, and he wrote what was upright and true. The words of God are true. We can trust what the word of God says. And so we don't have to worry about obeying these commandments. Is it the right thing? It's the right thing because God's words are true. And they're not burdensome in the sense, sometimes we get bogged down in this legalism that we want, to, we want, and I think it's part of human nature, that we want a checklist. If I just know that I have done all the things that God requires of me, then I'm going to be okay. I've done good. I've certainly done better than that person. We want a checklist, and that turns into a legalism. And obeying God's commandment is not a legalistic thing. It's a relationship thing. Because God has given us his commandments for our good. Look, in verse 11, it says, The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails. Now, that doesn't sound very pleasant. A goad was an implement that shepherds used to keep sheep on the right path. And they had, it was a stick with nails in it. And if you've ever been to the circus, have you watched those fellows try to move an elephant? You know how they do it? They poke them with a the sharp stick. Now, it always fascinated me that, that a big old elephant like that who could just wipe the guy out with a sweep of his trunk pays attention to where that stick is poking him. That's a goad. And that's what God's word is to us. It keeps us on the right path. Sometimes that's a little painful. But it's for our good. One of the best illustrations that I've heard uh, about God's commandments being for our good is an illustration that another pastor used. And he talked like this. Suppose that you were taken hostage. That you were in a situation where there were bad people holding you hostage. And it looked pretty bleak. But somehow, one of the SWAT guys was able to sneak his way in. And he gets you and whoever else you're with there, and he says, I'm here to take you to safety. Now here's what we're going to do. We're going to go out this door. We're going to go down that hallway. There's some steps at the end of the hallway. We're going to go down those steps. And there's another door that leads to another hallway. We're going to go out that hallway. And then we're going to go out that door, and there's a parking lot across the street. We're going to run over to that parking lot, and we'll be safe. And so you consider that and you say, well, my car's in the other parking lot. Can we go that way? Do we have to go right now? I, I was having a conversation with somebody here. I'd like to finish that. No, nobody would say that. Nobody would say, All right, wait a minute, how do I know you're who you say you are? How do I know you're really here? To, how do I know that you're not going to do something stupid? No, none of us would do that. We would say, if you're here to take me to safety, I'll do whatever you say. That's what God's commands are like. Another example is, have you ever bought anything from Ikea? Apparently not. <laughs> have you ever tried to put together a, a, a Lego set? We used to, One of our grandsons was into Legos for a while. We were buying these elaborate Lego sets. 
It's a box of plastic pieces. There's no way in the world to put that together to look like what's on the box without the instructions. One of the memes from Ikea, you've probably seen it uh, on the internet somewhere, somebody has a box that looked like they're the letters from a Scrabble game. And they say, I just bought a book from Ikea. That's because Ikea's instructions are really hard to follow. They're just pictures. But, but everything you buy from Ikea comes in very small pieces. It turns into some pretty nice stuff. But anyway, you can't live life without God's instruction. We can't do it. We can try. But here's the other thing about God's word. They are God's words. Look at what it says in verse 11. After it says the words are wise like the words of the wise are like the goads, they're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. They're God's words. And then it goes on in verse 12. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. So many times, especially in days like we're facing now, we want to think that God's word doesn't say what it says. And there are times that we would say, well, I know that's what God's word says, but it certainly couldn't mean that. What I, what I think it means, what I would like for it to mean is, God never intended for me to be unhappy. Who can say that? This life is full of toil and trouble. But yet we want God's word to say what we want it to say. And what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying here, beware of that. Listen to what God says, not what you think it says, or not what you want it to say. I find myself pointing like I'm fussing at people. And my wife tells me that I do that too much, and I'm sorry. But we don't want to be... What, what that does, if we live according to what we want God's word to say, that makes us God and not him. So the whole point... One of the whole points of Ecclesiastes is let God be God. And the fact that we're all going to die frees us up for just that. Because God put us here. He gave us what he wants us to have. And we should be happy with that. So when is it important for us to obey the commands? The beginning of the chapter. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. It's interesting that they use the word that he used the word creator there rather than just remember God. But the word, the fact that that he used the word remember your creator it just emphasizes that point again that God is God and he created us. I don't know. I don't talk about this much because it it leads you down all kinds of paths, but why did God start this in the first place? For his own glory. And that's that is our chief end, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And maybe one day we'll understand why God did what he did. But maybe when we get there, it won't matter. That won't be the thing that we're worried about. But when do we remember our creator? In the days of your youth, before those days come, when the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you'll say, I find no pleasure in them. Some of us are at that stage. I'm closer there now than I was not long ago. But look at what he says. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark. Anybody have trouble driving at night? The clouds return after the rain. Does every day seem gloomy? 
And when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when was the last time you tried to open a jar of pickles? It gets harder and harder, I can tell you. And the keepers of the house tremble. My legs shake more, some, more than they've ever shaken before, and sometimes it's just because I'm tired, I guess. I'm old. But this, the, uh, this is the one I like. When the grinders cease because they are few. I'm, I'm happy for you if you still have good, strong teeth. But that's what that's talking about. Um, and those looking through the windows grow dim, have trouble seeing. And here's a great one. Uh, when men rise up at the sound of birds, but their songs grow faint. Are you at the stage yet where the slightest little thing wakes you up? But yet, the slightest thing wakes me up. Generally, I can't go back to sleep for a long time. But yet, my grandkids tell me that I can't hear them when they talk to me. My hearing's going. But wouldn't you think if you can't hear that sleep would be great because you can't hear? But yet, it's true that as we get older, our sleep gets more easily interrupted. Why is that? Because we're old. And that's his point. When men are afraid of heights and dangers in the streets. Now, I'm a fearful guy in general. But as I've gotten older and my reflexes have gotten slower, one of my kids has told me, my grown sons, has told me that he doesn't like to ride with me when I'm driving because I brake check all the time. Do you know what that is? I didn't even know that was a thing. Brake check is where you hit your brakes often because you're afraid something's going to come out from the side. And I'm in that stage. I find myself doing that all the time. I see a car coming from the side, and I think, oh, that car's not going to stop. Well, they've got plenty of room to stop. But my reflexes are such that it makes me jumpy, and so I hit the brake. And everybody's doing this all the time riding with me. So my son has said, you're getting old, Dad. They're not going to come out in front of you. And I said, okay, well, when I get killed in a car wreck, you just remember those words. But that's the thing. The, 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 the afraid of heights, I had a client that was in his 90s. And I said, how are you getting along? He said, oh, I'm fine. He said, I can't get on my ladder and clean the gutters anymore. And I said, well, I hope not. I haven't been doing that since my 40s. But the, the fear of heights, this is a description of old age. We're all going to die. And if we're fortunate enough, we're going to live long enough to get old. Uh, early in our practice, I went up to the hospital to have a lady sign a will. And it was the, the smell of death was in the room. And she was by herself. And it was sad. And as we were leaving, my partner, we had only been practicing a little while. My partner was deep in thought, and he said, just think, if we live long enough, that's what we get to look forward to. So the end of life is tough, and it goes quick. Uh, a very crass saying is that life is like a roll of toilet paper. The closer you get to the end, the faster it goes. You can ponder that for a minute. So what's the point here of remembering your creator in the days of your youth if you're already old? Now, I can talk to the young people and say, the reason that the writer says, remember your creator in the days of your youth, is because the sooner you get fixed in your mind and in your heart the relationship of who God is and who you are, the better it shapes the way you think and the way you react to the things that you experience in life. And if you can do that while you're young, then you'll have a much easier life when you get older. 
Well, what about those of us who are old? It's never too late. Look at what it says. Remember him before the silver cord is severed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the spring. Your cord hadn't been severed yet and the golden bowl hadn't fallen because you're still alive. And as long as you're still alive, like one of the other passages we looked at, there's hope. And I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about people who have put their faith and trust in God and are to remember their creator even in our old age. So what do we do? Well, one of the things is in Psalm 71. Psalm 71, 17 says, Since my youth, O God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation. The psalmist isn't saying here, you know, don't let bad things happen to me in my old age. He's saying, in my old age, give me the opportunity to declare your power to the next generation. So if you're in retirement, for example, and you don't have anything to do, then give me a call and I'll give you a list of some young business guys that need to be mentored. Or I'll steer you to some couples that need advice in their marriage. Or I'll tell you a whole list of families that that need help with their kids. Don't give up just because you're old. There are too many people waiting around to die. So the point of the psalmist is here, don't forsake me when I'm old, not for myself, but for the next generation. So as long as we have life, then our goal is to enjoy what God has given us and to help those that are coming behind us. But there's a third point. Remember, he says, that God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. And this is what I was talking about when we talked about confession. When we think of judgment in the end times, that's, that's, sometimes that's a fearful thing to think about. But what we have to remember is that judgment is not judgment for our sins. Those sins have been forgiven and atoned for. Our guilt has been taken away. The judgment is for what we do with what God gives us. We'll give an account for what we do with what God gives us. And I'm not talking about how much you support missionaries, although that's important, you should do that. But how much have you enjoyed what God has given you? Also, in chapter 4, it talks about all the oppression and injustice. Life seems not fair, and we've been through some hard things. But in the end, God's judgment will make everything right. Death will be no more. Sickness will be no more. Discrimination will be no more. All the things that have bothered us about this life will be made right. So the point of Ecclesiastes is, let God be God. You be his child. Enjoy what he's given you. And life may be a vapor, but it's certainly not meaningless. To the glory of God, let me pray. Lord, we're thankful that you have given us your word and even those parts that are hard to understand, your Holy Spirit can make clear to us. So I pray, Lord, that if there's been anything that is uh, confusing or 
not in line with the word of your truth, then remove those things from our thoughts. Minister the truth of your word to our hearts. Make us truly thankful for what you've done for us, not only in our salvation, but in the very breath that we breathe and the food that we eat and the relationships that we have. Lord, help us to see your mercy and to be truly grateful. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now our hymn of response is hymn number 310, and we'll sing verses 1, 3, and 5.